Thank you for tuning in to the Liberty Church Online Podcast. This is Pastor Andrew, and whether you're listening in the car or at the gym, or maybe just sitting down with a cup of coffee and an open Bible in front of you, we hope that through this message, God will meet you right where you are and help you grow in your personal relationship with Him. So let's jump right into this week's study of God's Word together. chapter 6, and wherever you are on your spiritual journey, uh, whether you're just checking, the, checking out Christianity, okay, you're just kind of kicking the tires, trying to figure out your faith, and you haven't crossed the line of faith yet in Jesus, uh, or if you're new to the Christian faith, maybe you're here this morning and you've opened up your life to Christ, and maybe this is the first church you've ever really been a part of, uh, and so you're, you're kind of at that early stages, or perhaps many of you have been walking with the Lord for years, and... Um, seasoned saints, you know, you know, more mature in your faith. Regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, I think it is safe to say that everybody at least has a passing awareness of what we're talking about in Daniel chapter 6. It's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Everybody hear of it? Daniel in the lion's den? Okay, we've all, yeah, I think most of us at least have a passing familiarity with Daniel in the lion's den. That's what we're talking about today. We're in Daniel chapter 6. I don't think it's a spoiler alert when I say, when we read Daniel chapter 6, what's going to happen is Daniel is, if you've been with us, as usual, standing firm in his faith for the Lord, okay, he's, sta- he's staying true, and as a result of standing up in his compromising culture, he's persecuted for his faith, and he's thrown into the lion's den, and then God miraculously intervenes sends an angel, shuts the mouths of the lions, and Daniel is delivered, okay? Again, I don't think that's a spoiler alert. Most of us familiar with this account. I, that's, that's what we teach here at Liberty, okay? That's, that's what's in the Bible. I hope that's what you've heard when, you, when it comes to the subject of Daniel and the lion's den. But I start that way to say this. Um, and we talked about this last Sunday a little bit, but for liberal theologians and liberal Bible scholars and critics of the Bible, they like to pick on the book of Daniel. So it came up last Sunday. They like to pick on the historicity, if it's historically accurate. We addressed that just for a few moments last Sunday. Um, but they also like to um, kind of question the, the miracles in the book of Daniel, these supernatural interventions of God. And if you've been with us, it's probably like every chapter, every week, you know, there's a fiery furnace, there's a deliverance there, there's King Nebuchadnezzar turned into a cow, I mean, you know, he goes insane, uh, we talked about that, and now this, I mean, it's just like one thing after another, these really, what we define as miracles, God intervenes uh, in human history and does something extraordinary. But uh, liberal Bible scholars and liberal theologians, they, don't, they try to explain away those miracles. They don't, you know, uh, want to really admit that, you know, God showed up in this significant way. And while they all agree that this happened, okay, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and he was taken out of the lion's den unharmed, they all agree that, that okay, that, that most likely happened. They don't want to believe that God intervened and rescued Daniel, the way the Bible describes. And when you don't believe that, because of their anti-supernatural bias, when you don't believe that, then you have to come up with other explanations as to why Daniel survived a night in the lion's den. 
And so, uh, for example, and I promise I'm not making these up, okay? Um, some liberal commentaries, and I've read this with my own eyes, some liberal commentaries say this, that the reason the lions did not eat Daniel may very well have been because they were not hungry. <laughs> okay, is there such a thing as a lion that's not hungry? I don't know, but uh, perhaps they'd just been fed, you know, so they weren't interested. You know, they throw this, they throw Daniel in and, they're, you know, they've already eaten, so they just kind of ignore him and don't have any interest in eating him. And I just, I read that, and I go, really? Really? I mean, I, I don't know, but I'm thinking that when you throw an undomesticated carnivore a piece of meat, they usually can find room for it, okay? Whether they've eaten or not. Um, these were not circus animals, okay? In secular history records that these lion's dens were modes of execution, it wasn't like they were pets. It wasn't a petting zoo. It wasn't like a zoo where they, you know, they, just, they just feed these animals over and over so they don't attack people. That's not the way it was. The reason these governments had these lion's dens was a mode of execution, so they kept the lions lean and mean, so when they threw somebody in, you know, the execution would happen. They would be devoured by the lions. So... Actually, we'll read here in Daniel chapter 6 in just a few moments that um, once God delivers Daniel and he's taken out of the lion's den, the king throws all of Daniel's accusers into the lion's den. And it says in verse 24 that the lions devoured them before they hit the ground. They were just on top of them. They sure seemed hungry then. Okay, so that whole idea of, okay, maybe they weren't hungry, eh. There's a book out years ago by a guy named Norm Geisler titled, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Uh, you, you really got to have a lot of faith to say, okay, they weren't hungry. I, you know, I'm just going to go with God. That God showed up and delivered Daniel. Another, kind of comically, another um, reason, a more human description of what happened in this account. They say that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, but he, he got up and quickly hid himself somewhere, and the lions couldn't find him. Or, or, or he protected himself until morning when he got out. And again, scholars say that Daniel was about 82 years old when this happened. He's an older man at this time, a little creaky, okay? 82 years old, he's thrown into the lion's den, and I'm supposed to believe that he hopped up, brushed himself off, and scurried away before the lions devoured him. I mean, never catch me now, Mufasa. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, 82 years old. I mean, he's creeping along. Uh, it just seems very unlikely that that's how he saved himself. Um, but those are the kinds of things you're left with if you don't believe God is powerful and mighty and is able to intervene in his world. And you've, if you've been coming to Liberty for very long, you've probably heard me say before, if you believe the first verse in the Bible, that God created the heavens and the earth, then you shouldn't have a problem believing that God on occasion intervenes into the world that he created and accomplishes miracles like this. Th these things are well within his wheelhouse if he created the heavens and the earth. And so I just say, you know, let's, let's, let's just go with God, right? Let's just go with the Bible 
and, 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 and understand that, man, God shows up and he helps people and he blesses people and he cares for people like Daniel and like you and like me. And so he intervenes. And this is just an amazing account of him intervening in his world. Well, with that, let's go to Daniel chapter 6 and find out what really happened, okay, what the Bible says happened. The story begins with the current king, King Darius. He's the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire, and he has taken a good long look at his organizational flowchart and making some adjustments to how he manages and leads this empire. Now, remember from last Sunday, the great Babylonian empire that everybody thought would last forever, it's taken down by the Medo-Persian empire. God kind of shuts it down, and Nebuchadnezzar and all that group are out. They're on the ash heap of history now. Um, This new guy, this is the new king in town, King Darius, who leads the uh, Medo-Persian empire, and he's organizing how his administration will function. So take a look at Daniel 6 verse 1, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps, and that's not a word we use today necessarily, uh, but it's more just kind of a governor of a province, okay? Think of it like that, these satraps. Uh, So he, he pleased him to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. So really, Daniel has served the Lord in several different administrations, right? Uh, God's had his hand on his life and given him a position of influence with Nebuchadnezzar, with Belshazzar in Babylon, and now with King Darius. Uh, He becomes a high-ranking official. And it says, "...the satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss." Verse 3, "...now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And so it looks like there's a promotion in Daniel's future. Again, because God had had his hand on his life, he'd been such a good employee and served so faithfully and did such a wonderful job. King Darius is thinking about putting Daniel, you know, giving him the keys to the kingdom, put him in, put him in charge of everything and let everybody answer to him. And the NIV translates the Hebrew here by saying that Daniel had exceptional qualities. And that's a fine translation. That's what I typically use up here. But I prefer the New American Standard that some of you use on this particular verse where it says, Daniel possessed an extraordinary spirit. I like that better. Daniel possessed an extraordinary spirit. Because what set Daniel apart from his peers went beyond just his abilities or his talents, or his work ethic. He possessed an attitude. He possessed a a spirit that was extraordinary, and it just endeared him to the king. So, if you have a better attitude than everybody else in your workplace, if you work harder than all of your co-workers, if you're more productive than everybody else, if the boss likes you more than everybody else, and you're in line for a promotion before everybody else, I think most of us know enough about human nature to say, probably all your coworkers are going to hate you, if that's the case, right? Oh, I don't want to be cynical, but you know how human nature can be sometimes. And so they see Daniel, and man, he is on the fast track. He's better than they are. He's more committed than they are, he works harder, than, he's more gifted, he's more talented, he's got extraordinary qualities, and every, all the other co-workers just despise him. And so we can understand that dark side of human nature, 
these other satraps and administrators, these co-workers, were not big fans of his. Well, apparently, word gets out that King Darius is going to promote Daniel and put him in charge of the whole kingdom. So the other officials in the administration decide, we got to slow this guy's roll a little bit. we got to bring him down a couple of notches. And so they set out to find some dirt on Daniel. Now, what is it? What's the term they use in, in the political realm? Opposition research. Right? It's a nice way of saying digging up some dirt on somebody to bring, you know, to slander them, to make them look bad. And so that's what it says in verse 4, if you're following along. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Man, he's talking about a great testimony in the workplace, right? I mean, Daniel was a good, hard worker, trustworthy. Finally, it says, because they couldn't find anything on him, verse 5, finally these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless... It has something to do with the law of his God. And so they, they set out to do this opposition research, and they come back saying Daniel's character is squeaky clean. We can't find anything on this guy. No kickbacks, no dishonesty. I mean, this guy is unreal when it comes to his character and his integrity. But they put their heads together, and they come, with a, they come up with a devilishly clever way to get at Daniel, and indeed, it's in relation to his faith in God, his commitment to serve the Lord. So they go to King Darius, and here's what they say, verse 7, <clears throat> the royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now that is pretty clever. Right? you got to give the devil his due, okay? That's a pretty clever scheme because they know Daniel is not going to do this. Daniel worships the one true God. He's not going to put his faith on hold for 30 days. So they're thinking, we got this guy. Uh, because they, they come to the king and they say to Darius, um, uh, Darius, you're, you're a great king. People love you. We think you're so awesome. You're doing such a great job. We think it would be wise to just set aside 30 days to make you God. Have everybody worship you. Have everybody pray to you. And for 30 days, you're going to be considered everybody's God. What do you think about that? And again, not to be cynical, but knowing human nature the way we do. And Darius, you know, he's a pagan, self-centered king. What's he say? Ah, I like the sound of that. That's a pretty good idea, you know. I, I, I don't mind, you know, if we do that. that. That sounds pretty good. So they present this edict, this law, and, and Darius signs it into law right there and then. Now, something that has always bugged me about this account, and maybe, maybe, I don't know if you've read it this way or not, but Darius clearly trusts Daniel more than any of these other bozos, right? 
I mean, he, he knows, hey, this is the guy who's really got what it takes to be in charge of the whole land. He's going to give him the keys to the kingdom. He's going to put him over everybody. He'll only answer to, Daniel will only answer to Darius directly. So clearly, King Darius has a lot of confidence in Daniel above all these other guys. And what's always bugged me about this story is when you're reading this, does, wouldn't you think that Darius would look around the room and notice, hey, somebody's missing. Where's Daniel? Is this an official meeting? Or why, why isn't Daniel here? Because, I mean, again, he, he, he trusted Daniel's judgment. It seems like on a big decision, something like this, he would say, well, let's, get, let's, let's float this by Daniel, see what he has to say about it. I mean, that would have been the wise thing to do because Daniel could have put the brakes on it, perhaps. But he doesn't do that. He just says, sounds like a good idea to me. You know, it's law. And we're not going to talk about pride again this week because it's kind of consumed the last two weeks in the book of Daniel. But I, I'm guessing that this appeal to Darius's pride was just too much to resist, right? And hey, Darius, we want to make you God. We want people to worship you, pray to you as if you were God. And he just cannot resist. Uh, his, it feeds his ego and he makes this bad decision. His judgment is clouded by his pride. Now, let's pause the story right there and talk for just a couple of moments about the jealousy of Daniel's accusers. This is so evident, isn't it? Throughout the entire account, these verses that we've just read, these co-workers of Daniel were jealous of his wisdom. They were jealous of his position. They were jealous that he was going to be the one who was getting promoted. And instead of just doing their own job and minding their own business and being thankful for the positions they had, they were consumed with jealousy. And in these verses, they show themselves to be a group of small, insecure, backstabbing men. It's a really a pathetic picture of what jealousy can do to people. Uh, we won't read this part of it, but... but these guys who are supposed to be helping run the, the empire, these guys, they go to Daniel's house. They're snooping around Daniel's house, trying to find him, you know, praying or doing something that is against the law so they can get some dirt on him and come back and tell the king. It's really, just really a pathetic sight. And I think it's a good opportunity for you and I to talk about jealousy and envy and the, and the destructive role it can have in the life of the child of God. You know, if you're a son or a daughter of God, if you're part of God's church, God's family, you should never underestimate the destructive, consuming nature of envy and jealousy. Just, just a little bit in your life, just a few little seeds of jealousy in your heart can bear a lifetime worth of rotten fruit in your relationships with other people. Just a it doesn't take much. Just a few little seeds of it. You know, there are people in jail today because they've acted on their jealousy and their envy. It's so destructive. There are families divided today because of jealousy and envy. Yeah, I've seen it happen before. I hope, it, hope that never happens in your family or my family. But somebody dies, okay, and then, and then the kids or whoever, they start, 
Wow, where did that come from? No, that belongs to me. No, that's mine. No, they, they said I should have that. You know, and they just kind of get embroiled in this conflict over who gets what. Material things, splintering a family, that's jealousy and envy. It's, in a time where people should be supporting one another, they start to attack one another. Why would they do that right here? Jealousy. Churches can get embroiled in conflict because of envy. There are workplaces like Daniel's. I hope it's not yours. But there are workplaces like Daniel's that become toxic environments because people are jealous of one another, always trying to get ahead. I don't want them to get credit for that. No, I did that. You know, and just, just this battle, this fight that goes on, and, and it produces such conflict and resentment. It just makes an environment toxic. Relationships cannot flourish. Productivity is, is hindered because people are jealous. And as a follower of God, you know, as a, as a believer, a son or daughter in Jesus, you and I have, need to be very aware of that because there are two things that God asks of his children that he repeats over and over again in the Bible. If you read the Bible, you're going to find these two things come up over and over again. God says to his children, I want you to love people and I want you to be grateful. Man, if you can just love people and be grateful for how God's blessed you, that's going to save you a lot of grief in life and it'll bring honor to me. But jealousy undermines both those things because you can't really love people you're jealous of. You just can't love them the way God wants you to love. You may be able to be nice to them sometimes. You may be cordial towards them. But if they have something you want or you resent something they have, you're not going to be able to love them the way God's called you to love them. And as long as we walk around comparing ourselves with one another and, and, and not being thankful for what we have, how God has blessed us, there's just no way we're going to be able to cultivate the gratitude God's called us to have. Jealousy undermines both love and gratitude. And if you miss out on those two things in your Christian life, you're never going to grow as a follower of Jesus. Your faith will be hindered. There will be a lid on how far you can go in your Christian life, in your relationship with God. It's so severe. It's what caused the Apostle Paul to say to a church, okay? He's saying this to believers in Corinth. He's talking about one thing that, that helps him see that they haven't grown in their faith, they're immature, and they're acting like people who don't even know the Lord. And he says, the one thing I see in you is jealousy of one another. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, verses 1 and 3. It's a mark of spiritual immaturity. Look what Paul says. He visited the church, and then he writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, back to them. Here's what he says. When I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were mere infants in Christ, for you are jealous of one another. Worldliness and immaturity, that's what jealousy says about the person who possesses that terrible quality. Worldliness and immaturity. Well, on the positive side, if jealousy is a sign of spiritual immaturity and worldliness, then what's a sign of maturity and godliness? Well, for you and I as followers of Jesus, it's being able to celebrate the goodness of God in the lives of other people. To be genuinely happy when they succeed. Yeah, you know, 
If these co-workers would have known the Lord and been committed to the Lord, all right, Daniel, God's had his hand on you. We celebrate that. Now that, that is otherworldly, right? That is just not how this world system operates. No, we resent sometimes when, when good things happen to other people because we either want it to happen to us or in some way we think that puts them above us so we get real insecure about it. And Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians, listen, if you want a mark of spiritual maturity in your life and godliness in your life, be willing to celebrate God's goodness in the lives of other people. Don't, don't be jealous of them. Resist the urge, that carnal urge, to compete with them. Celebrate. That's a sign of maturity. And envy and jealousy make it impossible for us to love people the way God's called us to love them. So that's the jealousy of Daniel's accusers. Let's take a moment, though, and contrast that with the integrity of Daniel's faith. Throughout this book that bears his name, we see Daniel's relationship with God, his faith permeates every area of his life. He, is, he has what we would call integrity of faith. It's not as though, you know, Daniel you know, goes to church for an hour on Sundays and then checks the box, okay, I did my God thing, and now I'm going to get off and do my own thing. No, to Daniel, everything was a God thing. His faith had permeated every area of his life, at work, at home, in public, in private. That's integrity. That's where we get the word, right? Integrity just means to integrate, right? To integrate. Daniel had integrated God into every area of his life. And he's such a good example for us because his faith spilled over into his work life, his home life, his prayer life, every part of his life. Think about this. Daniel, like many of you, was a government employee. Okay? He worked for the government over 60 years of his life. He worked for a variety of different corrupt administrations. He worked with a variety of different corrupt people. He worked in a corrupted, broken, worldly system. That's where, that was Daniel's workplace over 60 years of his life. He was right in the middle of all that corruption, all that sinfulness. And yet, when these co-workers tried to find some dirt on him, remember what I said in verse 4, they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel. And he sets such a great example for us as followers of Jesus in the 21st century because Daniel was not what I would call a compartmentalized Christian. You know what I mean by that? A compartmentalized Christian. Some people try to live out their faith that way. It usually doesn't work out very well for them. But some Christians view their life as a dresser. And within that dresser, they have all these drawers that go into the dresser. There's a spiritual drawer, there's a financial drawer, there's a career drawer, there's a recreation drawer, there's a sexuality drawer. There's all these drawers that fit into their life, the dresser. And they like to keep things compartmentalized, everything in its own drawer. They don't like to mix drawers, okay? <laughs> everything in its own drawer, compartmentalized and separate. But you see, when you give your life to Jesus, 
when you surrender your life to God the way Daniel did. You you no longer view your life that way. You don't view your life as, okay, I'm the drawer, I'm I'm the dresser and all these drawers fit into where I want them to be. So when you open up your life to Jesus and surrender your life to God, God becomes the dresser. And all the drawers fit into him, you see. They're surrendered to him. That's the way Daniel lived. He said, hey, God is first in my life. God's on the throne of my life. I don't keep everything separate. I'm the same guy at work as I am at home, in public as I am in private. I've surrendered everything to the Lord, Daniel says, and I'm going to honor him in every area to the best of my ability. It's not just an hour on Sunday. It's just not when I'm around godly people. No, I, I, listen, I want to have integrity in my faith. And we see that in Daniel's life in, throughout this book, and God's hand is upon him. God's favor is upon him as a result. And so how about you, you know? Who's the drawer? Who's the dresser? You know, have you, have you let God become the dresser and all the drawers fit into him? Or are you still trying to be the dresser and keeping everything separate? Here's how you can tell. When you come to church and um, you hear God's word or you're reading the Bible and you come across things that make you uncomfortable and, and it kind of unsettles you and you start to have this attitude, oh, hey, wait a minute, that, that's my financial drawer, God. I don't want you, that's none of your business. You're in the church drawer. You're in the religion drawer. You stay in your drawer. Oh, no, God, that's my hobbies drawer. Those things are my business. Oh, no, hey, this is the sexuality drawer. That's off limits to you, God. Okay, you stay in the religious drawer. And if that's your attitude, then, then you're lacking integrity in your faith. But if your attitude is, okay, God, it's uncomfortable. I don't like you rummaging around in all these drawers because that means I got to make some changes in my life. But I've surrendered to you, so I give you permission to do that because I want my life to honor you. Integrity of your faith. Daniel's such a wonderful example of what it looks like to integrate God into every drawer, every area of your life. And as an example of that, we didn't read this verse yet. When this law had been passed, that no one was supposed to pray or worship anybody other than King Darius. Look at Daniel's reaction to it in verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. And if you write in your Bible, you should just underline that phrase, just as he had done before. Now, that's integrity. You know, he's not freaking out. Oh, what, the king passed this law. Oh, what's going to happen now? He's like, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. I'm, I, I served the Lord before. I'm going to serve the Lord now. I prayed to the Lord before. I'm going to pray to the Lord now. You see that, see, that integrity gave him security in his life. He didn't have to start worrying. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to keep doing what I've always been doing. Putting the Lord first. Praying to him. And worshiping him. And he's not obnoxious about it. He's just unfazed by it, right? Because his faith in God ran so deep into every area of his life. That's that's integrity of faith. It's a great example for us today. And did you notice something that 
really shows his integrity is his unwillingness to compromise even for 30 days. Okay, so this law was passed that you could only pray and worship Darius for 30 days, okay? It's not indefinite. And so you could kind of see, you know, Daniel compromising a little bit, saying, okay, okay, well, it's only 30 days. You know, I can put things on hold, maybe be a little bit more discreet about my prayers and worship than I was. Then I'll get back to my regular holy habits after the law, you know, has expired. But at this stage in Daniel's life, I mean, he's in his 80s. He's walked with the Lord so long, and his faith is, his faith is so strong. By this time, listen, he was unwilling to compromise at all. No, I want to keep doing what I've been doing. I've been following the Lord. He's got me this far. He's been faithful to me. I can be faithful to him. Integrity. He would have viewed any compromises unacceptable to his life. And there's a, there's a verse in Proverbs that I've shared with so many people over the years. Um, seeking God's will. What should I do? I've got to make a decision. I'm at a fork in the road. These circumstances are kind of confusing. I'm not sure of the way forward. There is a proverb that I've shared with so many, many people over the years. I think it's one of the most practical words of wisdom in the entire Bible. It's Proverbs chapter 11, verse 3. Here's what it says. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. The integrity of the upright guides them. And let me just say to that, you and I can avoid a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety in our lives when it comes to decision-making, when it comes to discerning the way forward, if we'll just let integrity guide us, the integrity of our faith, the integrity of our life with the Lord, our relationship with the Lord. Because integrity in your faith, it serves as kind of a north star in your life. And you're always moving towards it. You're always moving in that direction. And there's going to come times in your life, as there are in mine, when I'm not sure of the way forward. I'm not sure what the right decision is. I want, to, I want to get it right, but I don't know if I always do. But if you'll let integrity be your North Star, if you'll keep moving in the direction of integrity of your faith, God has a way of getting you to the right place, meeting the need, giving you the wisdom you need. We told our kids that for for years, as they've had to make decisions and wrestle with, should I go to this college or that college, pursue that path or this path? Listen, we don't always have the answers for them. And as a pastor, I don't always have the answers for you. But here's what I know. The integrity of the upright will guide them. And if you'll put God first in your life and you'll have some integrity in your faith, if you'll just say, God, I want to follow you. I want to be obedient to you. And I'm not sure if I'm you know, if this is the, the right decision to make at this time, but, but my eyes are on the North Star. My eyes are following you. I am moving in your direction regardless of which way I go in the fork in the road. God has a way of providing and getting you to where he wants you to be, and that's always the best place to be. Daniel experienced that firsthand because he was unwilling to compromise. All right, when well, our closing moments, let's get back to our account Daniel's accusers see that, you know, he keeps praying to the Lord like he always has been. So they go back to the king with their evidence and they rat him out. Hey, King Darius, Daniel's not being obedient to your law. And um, at this point, I think the light sort of comes on for old King Darius. Look what it says in verse 14. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. 
Notice he wasn't angry or mad at Daniel. I think he realized he'd been duped. He'd been tricked into punishing his most valuable asset in Daniel. Uh, The king was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. So now clearly he feels bad about the whole thing. And he he starts to see the light and how his pride kind of got in the way. But, you know, to his credit, he he tries to to do whatever he can, maybe find some loopholes. But that's not how the law of the Medes and Persians work, right? By reputation, the law of the Medes and Persians is it's, it's set. It's unchangeable. And so there were no loopholes that he could help Daniel escape with. So verse 16, it says, So the king gave the order. And they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. And isn't that a great reputation to have? It comes up twice, actually, in this chapter. The king refers to Daniel as your God, the one whom you serve continually. That's integrity, continually. It doesn't matter where he is, what he's doing. He's got the Lord first in his life. Verse 19 um, says this, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue from the lions? Verse 22, Daniel responds, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And then check this out, verse 24. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered and crushed all their bones. Yes! That's not really a Christian attitude, right, by the way. But they were such punks. Right? I mean, they were kind of, they were kind of punks. Um, by the way, verse 24 sounds pretty harsh. Uh, I mean, wives and children, too. I mean, wow, that's really kind of extreme. But that was part of the law, of the, the relatively cruel law of the Medes and Persians, that if, if you were accused of a crime, it, you wouldn't be the only one who suffered, but your family would suffer also, and that's just how they did things back then. Uh, so we've talked about the jealousy of Daniel's accusers, the integrity of Daniel's character. How about lastly, just for a moment, the ability of Daniel's God. I love this. The ability of Daniel's God. And the reason I love that is because, you know, if you're a believer in Jesus, Daniel's God's your God, and he's my God. He's the one true God, uh, the God of the Bible. And, and King Darius, for the first time, is seeing that, Daniel's God is able. I mean, maybe he heard the stories about Nebuchadnezzar and all those things in the past. Maybe he did. Probably did. But for the first time, King Darius is seeing with his own eyes that, wow, Daniel's God has some serious ability to rescue and to deliver. And I just love this because we serve the same God. So the chapter closes with Darius making another proclamation, and this one is not to worship himself, but to worship Daniel's God. Uh, Verse 25, if you're following along in a Bible, 
Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. And of course, you know, the application in these closing verses of the chapter for you and I is that the same God who helped Daniel in his lion's den can help you in your lion's den. Whatever the trials, whatever the adversity, whatever whatever the opposition, whatever the fears that you're having or the anxieties that you're feeling when you came into church this morning, listen, if God is your father and you're his son or you're his daughter, that same God who helped Daniel in his lion's den can help you in yours. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't lost sight of you. And we can't always predict God's desired outcome for our situation. But because God is faithful, we can always trust Him with the outcome. Sometimes God delivers us from lion's dens. Other times, God just walks with us through the lion's den, helps us learn some things while we're there, and brings about something good about in our lives or in the lives of others. Whatever the case... However, that story ends that your particular struggle or adversity or challenge or fear, however that ends, listen, God is always good and God is always loving and God is always able to help. We used to sing an an old song, an old chorus that he is able, more than able to accomplish what concerns me today. What is it that concerns you today? God is able to accomplish it. Lean into him. Trust him. Maintain the integrity of your faith in the midst of the lion's den. You can always trust a good, loving God with the outcome. And he invites us to trust him. Well, if you've ever been over to my office uh, in the admin building here on campus, then you've probably seen this portrait on my wall. Um, it's of Daniel in the lions. It's a very old painting. And I've, I've had that picture on my wall for years and years. And I just have always found great comfort in it. And here's why. Because you see in that picture, the lions, they're, they're, they're creeping up on Daniel. But Daniel's not looking at the lions. Daniel has his eyes turned toward heaven. Where does my help come from, Psalm 121? Where does my help come from? It comes from the maker of heaven and earth. So Daniel can feel those lions coming up behind him, whatever it is, you know, trials, adversity, disappointments, discouragements, failures, opposition, whatever it might be, whatever whatever lions you feel creeping up on you. The lesson from that painting that I take Year after year, keep your eyes on God. Keep your eyes on the Lord. That's where your help comes from. Hey, out of his peripheral vision, he could feel it. He he could probably hear them, you know, growling. 
He maybe even felt their breath, but he's not going to turn around and, and keep his eyes on them. He's going to keep his eyes on the solution, the deliverer, the God who is able. And so maybe you came to church this morning and, man, you're feeling like the lions are creeping up on you. I just want to challenge you. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Look to him, the maker of heaven and earth. He is your deliverer. He will be your help. And most importantly, he is unconditionally committed to loving you. He's merciful, he's good, and he's able.